News from the Brazil-Argentina Women's Series. ATC emerging women's action in spite of all the rain. Plus, East Asia-Pacific under-19s. Action in Europe and Africa. And a breakdown, of course, of everything happening at the Cricket World Cup qualifier. That's all coming up this week on the EC Pod. A shout-out to our latest patron, John Meffin. Thank you for supporting the EC movement. Nick and Rod Lyle take you through the show this week. And a quick reminder that this week was recorded before Saturday's action at the qualifier. Enjoy. Welcome, one and all, to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Skinner, and I'm joined today by Rod Lyle, uh, with Bez and Tim both quite busy, and we're going to catch up with a lot of cricket that's happened around the world, and of course, the ICC Cricket World Cup qualifiers. First off, welcome, Rod. Hi there, Nick, and hello, everybody. Yes. How's how's the Netherlands? Uh, summer in Europe? Uh, sun's shining? Things looking nice? Sunny, beautiful. We've had a great week. A couple of very good weeks. Um, there was a T20 rained off, a, a T20 Cup match rained off last night, which seemed very strange because that had been out of our thoughts. But it was, yeah, just one evening of really bad weather down in Rotterdam. But other than that, the weather is glorious. Yes, same here. Funnily enough, in Iceland, the uh, summer solstice happened. Uh, beautiful blue sky until well, basically all night. Um, and uh, yeah, lovely, lovely evening. Uh, the sun is shining people are happy yeah iceland in in summer is actually really really cricket lovely. being played in iceland cricket is indeed being played by iceland's small cricketing community although i was actually at the the ground that they have used in the past and uh, you know a couple of weeks ago and it was a uh, it was being used for a viking festival so you know uh, they they do have some uh, some multi-purpose things but uh yes lots of cricket happening uh, around all corners of the globe, really. So we'll, we'll just uh, sort of plough through a bit of a lightning round and then we'll get to the substantive analysis with the qualifiers. Uh, starting off and talking of, I guess, bad weather, the ACC Women's T20 Emerging Teams Asia Cup, a uh, bit of a mouthful, but basically a sort of second 11 tournament uh, in the Asia region organised by the uh, Asian Cricket Council involving uh, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Nepal, uh, and the UAE as associates, and also the A-teams from uh, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, was run over sort of the last couple of weeks. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the matches were rained out, basically almost a whole group stage. Uh, we got in just under half of the group matches, uh, and the rest of the matches were abandoned. Uh, so that was a bit of a shame. Uh, in the matches we did see, uh, Nepal went down... Quite narrowly, they bowled out Pakistan A for 87, but they couldn't chase it. Uh, Hong Kong got thrashed inside six overs by India. A, uh, so that's the, that was Group A uh, with the four teams. And then in the other groups, the UAE pushed Sri Lanka A. Uh, Sri Lanka, and, and we have talked in the past about the UAE women uh, being, a, being a dangerous team, uh, certainly at associate level. And I mean, Sri Lanka's women's team has struggled to find some depth, so uh, they're probably one of the weaker full members in the region. But yes, uh, they only they only got over the line chasing 96 in on the last ball with three wickets in hand. Bangladesh A thumped Malaysia, uh, and then Malaysia pushed the UAE. Actually, <laughs> in a, in a five-over affair, uh, the UAE got there uh, also on the last ball, uh, chasing 30 odd. Uh, in their group match, uh, but then yes, all the rest of the group matches were abandoned. 
which meant that India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Pakistan all met, went through to the semifinals. The first semifinal was also abandoned, uh, <laughs> which saw India go through, uh, and then Bangladesh beat Pakistan, uh, the, the A-team, of course, uh, in their semifinal on the reserve day. Uh, and then finally, on the final, we, we actually got a full match in where India won pretty comfortably against Bangladesh. So uh, overall, a pretty good tournament. Good that it was run and, you know, a great initiative. It was the first event of this kind uh, being run by the ACC. And, you know, recently we've seen a lot of associates and women's stuff coming out from the ACC. And basically it sort of reiterates the point that we've made in the past of them being uh, the gold standard when it comes to in uh, regional cricketing bodies so unfortunate for the associates that they couldn't uh, couldn't really get any more matches but you know still probably a good experience to to spend some time around uh, some good players uh, sadly thailand's a team wasn't able to make it due to visa problems uh, getting into hong kong where it was hosted but uh, yeah i don't know maybe next time they can try and uh, schedule around a better time of year for <laughs> for the weather yeah absolutely um and I mean the the visa issues. I understand it had something to do with with the fact that the Thai women are supposed to be coming to the Netherlands, or at the beginning of next next month. And I hope that tour goes ahead because they're playing the Dutch and they're also playing Scotland in a tri series in the Netherlands. So let's hope there's no difficulty about their travelling to those. Yes, I mean that should be a really exciting tournament. The Thai women, of course, uh, beat the Netherlands pretty comprehensively uh, in Bangkok uh, a few months ago in a, in a home series, but it will be interesting to see the, the return leg and, and especially against Scotland who have been a bit better than, uh, than the Netherlands in recent times in, in European women's associate cricket. So yes, as you say, hopefully that series goes ahead. Uh, in- it's three ODIs between the Netherlands and Thailand and then a T20 try series. So it's, as you say, potentially very, very interesting series of matches. The ODIs are 3, 5 and 7 July in Amstelveen and the T20 series is the 10th to the 15th of July in Utrecht. Utrecht is a lovely city actually, so that that should be good if anyone can uh, make it down. Personal note, I will be scoring some of those. Oh good, Rod's, Rod's back in the scoring game. This is good news for everyone. But uh, yeah, so... Looking forward to that one. Uh, moving across to South America, and we saw a Julia Price coached Brazil host Argentina for a five-match series. Five huge wins at Posos de Carlos, their home ground, uh, the city in the city in Brazil where they, uh, the, the Brazilian Cricket Association, spend a lot of their time and, and effort with you know the the Black Shirts program that they have running um, and, and various other kind of development initiatives scroll back and, and listen to our interview with matt featherstone from cricket brazil if, if you want to hear a bit more about that but uh yes uh, between the 17th and 19th of june uh they played five matches brazil won by 10 wickets 85 runs 119 runs 89 runs and 45 runs so pretty comprehensive uh, hard to really uh, take many positives out of that for argentina unfortunately um although it does show the continued development of Brazil, who are sort of charging ahead in that uh, that America's region, um, with with this comprehensive development program and and a lot of uh, a lot of good talent coming through. Yeah, I think that's true, and it's it's sad. I think that that Argentina is is obviously struggling both in the men's and now to some degree in the women's game because they were for a long time the powerhouse of South American cricket, even playing first class matches against British teams uh, before the, between the two wars. So, yeah, it's a shame that they have not been able to, to continue 
progress as world cricket has expanded. Yes, uh, one of the one of the classic what if questions of associate cricket is, uh, you know, what if what if Argentina's success uh, sort of 80, 90 years ago had been capitalised on and, and uh, with a more, let's say, less uh, less insular governing body. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of that's that's another story. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, yeah, so good good stuff from Brazil, uh, but uh, yeah, too strong for Argentina. We can also look across to Europe, where a, f- a number of series have happened in, in recent times. Uh, Germany played out a 4-0 series victory against Belgium. Then the Central Europe Cup was held in the Czech Republic, uh, who beat Hungary 3-0. But it was three very close games, so that was uh, a pretty exciting little little series. Uh, and of course, there's the ongoing uh, Bulgarian quadrangular tournament uh, in Sofia, the, the capital of Bulgaria, uh, involving the hosts and Croatia, Serbia and Turkey. Always nice when Turkey is able to actually get there. Uh, they've had a lot of <laughs> a lot of visa issues in the past, leading to some pretty understrength teams. Uh, an interesting little point is that uh, Dimo Nikolov has been promoted to the captaincy for Bulgaria. He's been uh, around the side as one of the senior players and all-rounder for a few years. And uh, yeah, so his, his career is coming along nicely there. The series is ongoing and running until the 25th of June when the final will be played. We also have a series between Switzerland and Luxembourg being played uh, in Luxembourg. And so that'll be an interesting a little matchup with uh, with the two teams meeting at the Pierre Werner Cricket Ground. Pierre Werner, an interesting character uh, in Luxembourg cricket. Uh, in the past, uh, he he was involved in, in uh, setting up the scene there. Uh, became interested in the game while he was overseas, and then sort of brought it home. Um, worth looking into Pierre Werner if you get a chance. But uh, yeah, that's going to play twenty uh, fourth to twenty fifth of June uh, between Switzerland and Luxembourg. The Jersey women are also traveling. They're going uh, across the channel to Guernsey and they're going to play three T20 matches between the 24th and 25th of June. Uh, So that's always a good rivalry. Uh, We also have Austria playing some matches against Germany uh, in the Netherlands, which is an interesting setup. And uh, that'll be played later on in the month, the 29th and the 30th of June. So an action-packed calendar at the moment in Europe. Yes, absolutely. And of course, it's high season here. Uh, Countries are preparing for the T20 qualifier uh, and the men's under-19 World Cup qualifier and the women's qualifiers as well. So there's a lot of cricket being played with a view to performing well in those ICC tournaments later in the summer. Yes, and I believe the Netherlands are also hosting some underage cricket uh, with Denmark uh, at the moment. So that's also uh, playing into those those under-19s qualification pathways as well. Yeah, uh, the men's under-19 World Cup qualifier runs from the 6th to the 12th of August. Uh, Moving a little closer to, well... Not to where we currently are, but to the uh, the country that we uh, sometimes call home. Uh, the East Asia Pacific Under-19s qualifiers are run and done. Uh, they were hosted in Darwin and a little bit in, in North Queensland. New Zealand cruised through pretty much as you'd expect against associate opposition. Uh, so we'll be seeing the Kiwis back at the 2024 Men's Under-19s World Cup. Uh, some interesting points to note, though, Japan came in second best. Uh, they finished on 10 points with five victories and only the one loss against the dominant New Zealand. Uh, Kiefer Yamamoto was the top wicket taker, which was a good effort from him. New Zealand based, but uh, with, with you know Japanese heritage. Uh, Fiji 
also beat PNG, which which was a, a bit of an upset, and they finished third. PNG finished on three wins and three losses. Indonesia, two wins and four losses. Samoa, only the one win against Vanuatu, and uh, poor old Tim, his boys finished last on the points table with no victories. Uh, potentially, uh, depending on whether Tim's available, uh, we might be able to chat about that in more depth. But um, yeah, some some interesting results, but pretty much what you would expect in, in terms of New Zealand going through. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of an accident that they had to play in that qualifier anyway, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they skipped the last one uh, due to COVID issues and not wanting to quarantine a bunch of uh, <laughs> a bunch of 17-year-old kids which is is pretty understandable. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and and just a reminder that the Europe leg of that tournament will be starting in August. And moving to Africa, we have a couple of tournaments uh, that have just finished. We had the Quibuka tournament, the, uh, the 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 tournament run in remembrance of the 94 genocide in Rwanda, and that was played with the women's teams of the hosts, obviously, uh, Uganda, Nigeria, Kenya, and Botswana. And on the men's side, we had the Continent Cup T20 Africa, which in an interesting little sort of subplot was actually run by the International League T20 organization. That involved Botswana, Kenya, Rwanda, and Uganda, and was hosted in Kenya. Uh, Uganda had a good outing in both tournaments. They made the final. They beat Kenya on the men's side in the Continent Cup. Uh, but they went down to Rwanda in the Kwibuka with the host recording their first victory uh, in, in the tournament. So congratulations to them for that one. So we'll start with the Kwibuka and running through the results. Uh, Uganda were pretty dominant in the group stage. It was, of course, a double round robin. Uh, in their eight matches, they only dropped the one game, their last group match against Nigeria. Uh, Nigeria, of course, looked significantly improved um, you know, over the last sort of year, 18 months. Their women's team has been getting better and better. Uganda, their their batting has been their Achilles heel, and in that game, it, so it was. And Nigeria restricted them to 72, and they turned them over. They got there in the 19th over with the wonderfully named Salome Sunday leading the chase, 25 not out. Um, Rwanda, second in the group phase, five wins, three losses. Nigeria also on five wins, three losses, but they missed out on the final due to uh, inferior net run rate. Uh, Kenya struggled a lot in the group phase, actually. Two wins only and six losses, and Botswana with a solitary win over Nigeria. To an extent, what you would expect, uh, Botswana have struggled, uh, especially on the women's side. Uh, Kenya have been disappointing. I I think they've really slid down the pecking order in Africa of late. Uh, they only beat Botswana in a super over in the group stage uh, and then uh, beat Nigeria pretty comprehensively with a Quintor able half century uh, in the third place playoff. Uh, yeah, so Quintor Abel was a, a bit of a bright spot for the Kenyans. She topped the run charts with 206, and she also grabbed <laughs> 11 wickets. Um, but other than that, they they did really struggle, and it's been sort of a, an ongoing story for the last few years that they've they've been gradually overtaken. Uh, Tanzania not playing in this tournament, um, also uh, probably ahead of them at the moment in in that East Africa region, and you know now Rwanda seems to be skipping ahead, uh, with of course. Henriette Ishimwe, immense, uh, leading the wicket tally. Uh, she grabbed 16 scalps across the tournament, including four for six in the final to, to wreck Uganda. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this this is 
just the, the the ongoing story, I guess, for Uganda. Their their batting just wasn't good enough. Uh, Stephanie Nampina, the best for them, but yeah, they just don't have anyone who's really standing up and, and scoring a lot of runs. And and yeah, I mean, Rwanda was able to take advantage of that in the final, where the Ugandans were bowled out for 65 and uh, pretty comfortable chase in the end for Rwanda. Uh, so. Congratulations to the hosts on their first title, and uh, yeah, it just shows how exciting and dynamic this African region is with with you know teams moving up and down, and and there's a lot of jostling for places. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's a great result for Rwanda, and excellent for cricket that countries who were not playing cricket at all in the relatively recent past mm. are now beginning to come through. Uh, and both in the women's and the men's game, obviously, the continuing success of Uganda is one of the major themes. And against that, the continuing problems that Kenya have from having been next off the rank for test status not that long ago, they, they, they've really struggled and are in the men's game particularly. Well, perhaps in both, in, in both men and women, they're, they're continuing to, to find life increasingly competitive, having been dominant in East Africa for a very long time. Well, yes, there's another uh, cricketing what if in associate circles. You know, what if what if Kenya had been given the support and and uh, structures in place from the ICC that they needed? I still remember when they were given permanent ODI status, which uh, turned out not to be so permanent. Um, but uh, that's another story. Uh, yeah, as you say, they they have just really struggled over the years. Although on the men's side, and and we can uh, swap over to the Continent Cup T20. The Kenyan men seem to have stabilised somewhat. They, uh, in the nine group matches, it was a, a triple round robin um, due to sort of some some scheduling shuffles with, with various teams sort of pulling out and, and things needing to be rejigged. It's all played at the Nairobi Gymkhana and yeah, Kenya came in second in the group phase to uh, make the final. That They won six of their nine matches and lost three. Uh, Uganda won eight of their nine matches with only the one loss against Kenya. Botswana and Rwanda both finished on four points with uh, two victories each. Probably the most notable victory there actually was Botswana beating Kenya by 30 runs uh, early on in the group stage. But they, they couldn't uh, keep it up and, and they did sort of fade towards the end. And yeah, the final, pretty good recovery for Uganda. They were four wickets for five runs in the fourth over. And they managed to claw their way back to 125 all out in the 20th over. Dinesh Nakrani led the resistance uh, with 42, hit five sixes on his way there. Uh, Brian Masaba slid down the order and uh, stabilized things alongside him as well. And then in response, the Kenyans played out an absolute thriller. They lost by one run on the very last ball of, <laughs> of the match. Uh, Colin Zabuya, the eternal, the evergreen, hit 44 in the chase, but uh, didn't quite get enough support. And Kenya... Just couldn't quite get over the line. Seven wickets down, yeah, and they lost by one run, as I said. So overall, I mean, yeah, Kenya, after a sort of a long period of decline, seemed to be sort of stabilising around that uh, upper African associate level, um, at least on the men's side. Uh, a good tournament for Raket Patel. Uh, he batted quite well for them, but I mean, I think the real story is Colin Zabuya, forty odd years old. Uh, topping the run charts, averaging 47 at a strike rate of 136. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, this guy, he's had, yeah, kind of an interesting career. People who remember the 2003 World Cup would, would probably remember him coming onto the scene 
as a as a yeah, as a leg spinner, and he, he got a county contract on the back of that, and um, had some success. Although these days he's sort of more or less transitioned into basically just being an aggressive uh, top order bat. And uh, yeah, so an interesting uh, interesting for Kenya to see him uh, batting as well. And yeah, of course Raket Patel also in the runs. I mean, uh, yeah, as I said, it's sort of more or less what you would expect at this level. Uh, especially with Tanzania missing. Uh, but uh, yeah, good job to Kenya for putting on this event. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, isn't it? One almost doesn't know whether to laugh or cry at the successes of, of the evergreen players like Colin Zabuya and Franken Sabuga uh, and Brian Masaba and others who've been around for 15, 20 years. And it's great that they're still performing, but it's also it's good to see younger players coming through and... Obviously, countries like Kenya and Uganda need a constant flow of talented young cricketers coming through. And Siraj and Subuga and others are showing that. But for us older people, it's great to see the 40-year-old-plus-year-old 40 still <laughs> still doing it. Yeah, I mean, Frank, Frank Nusabuga, uh, as long-time listeners will be aware, is a, is a firm favourite of the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Uh, wheels through his off spin very quickly. You know, if you ever get a chance to watch him, he just sort of uh, hustles through and, and sort of rushes back batters very very tidy very difficult to get away um but uh yeah you, you mentioned um the the younger guys coming through Raj Patel for Kenya I mean this is kind of the story of the tournament the top eight wicket takers <laughs> at the tournament were all spinners uh which I'm sure will make Tim happy uh and yeah nine of the top ten so the, the the pitch was getting a bit tired especially towards the end and I mean Nairobi Jim Kana is I mean, it's, it's not what it once was, you could say. And yeah, so it, it's a little bit ramshackled these days. So yeah, spin definitely dominant. But yeah, Vraj Patel for Kenya, Maya Surya for Botswana coming through. As you say, Siraj Nusubuga, who, uh, you know, and anyone familiar with Ugandan cricket uh, can hopefully enlighten us as to whether he's related to Frank. Uh, Frank, of course, parsimonious as ever. But yeah, Henry Senyondo actually topped the wicket tally for Uganda. Another uh, when, blast from the past. Yeah. Yes, and, and another off-spinner. I mean, he's still not even 30, so uh, he, he has been around for a while, though. But yeah, 18 wickets for him at a very tidy economy rate. He's a pretty deadly partner to Nusubuga once, you know, when, when they're going you know, one at each end, it gets very tight and, uh, yeah, it makes things difficult. Just on the batting side of things, though, I mean, this is kind of the... Uh, it, it does seem like there is some talent coming through uh, with the ball for Uganda and and for and as well for Kenya and and a couple of other teams, but yeah, just just with the bat. I mean, it is sort of bowling heavy tournament, partly due to the pitch and uh, you know partly due to the the quality of of the bowling, of course. But yeah, I mean, you you look at that that sort of a, the run charts and as you say, it's it's the old timers uh, sticking around. I like that uh, Roger Macasa seems to have found a bit of form. He he's I think I think this role suits him actually. He's in the past been a little a uh, little sluggish um, in that opening role, but you know he goes hard and I I think that's partly the success is you know attacking the new ball you know at a venue where once it softens up a little bit it becomes very difficult to score. But you know he he hit 220 runs in eight matches, strike rate of 150, which was the best for the tournament. And uh, yeah, he didn't make a half century, but he averaged 36. So he was he was very consistent at the top. And yeah, so good good tournament for him. And that kind of you know they they have they have struggled to figure out a formula. They've they've had a lot of guys sort of come up and down the order. So I mean maybe this is 
a blueprint for the next couple of years. Simon Sasazi's form might be a bit of a concern. He, he didn't really score that many runs, averaging sub-20, although he was hitting it effectively, uh, you know, still at a good strike rate. But yeah, so that's kind of maybe one of the question marks for Uganda, but, uh, you know, they got the silverware, so can't complain too much. And now moving on to, I guess, the main part of the show uh, staying in Africa, though, in Zimbabwe, uh, we've got the Cricket World Cup qualifiers. We're about halfway through the group stage, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, with uh, most teams having played two of their three group matches. Things, you know, more or less what you would expect. You know, West Indies and Zimbabwe looking good in Group A, Sri Lanka dominating in Group B. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of surprises. Ireland... In a way, it's not necessarily a surprise to see them playing so poorly, but you would still expect a bit better. And Scotland, who we thought might struggle, actually, have uh, produced two pretty remarkable uh, come-from-behind batting displays to win two matches in two attempts. Uh, the UAE already eliminated, which is a bit of a shame because uh, you know they're one of the teams that has had a, had a pretty good turnaround in recent times. Yeah, and, and Oman seem to have brought their A game. Uh, yes... They got thrashed by a rampant Sri Lanka, but you know, in their first two matches, they looked fresh. Uh, I guess time will tell whether they continue this run or whether they, they sort of fade towards the end of the group stage and, and get themselves in trouble. But yeah, I mean, that sort of Group B is more of the surprise, I guess you could say, with, with Sri Lanka, Scotland and Oman currently uh, in position to, to advance. Um, and then looking back to Group A, uh, West Indies and Zimbabwe, that... that match between the two of them will be crucial in terms of points carried forward. And Netherlands look to be probably the best of the rest, which is maybe a surprise with Nepal. You know, we expected them to do perhaps a little bit better, although they've, they've had a tough draw in that they've they've faced Zimbabwe and West Indies in their first three games. And they did, of course, beat the USA pretty comprehensively. So in a sense, you could say they've done what they uh, would have expected to do, but they looked outgunned against Zimbabwe and the West Indies, uh, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, what, what do you think? Because I, I think Nepal showed uh, showed intent at least in both of those games, and, and they, you know, they scored. They posted 290 against Zimbabwe, and um, you know they got bowled out, basically going for it against the West Indies, who posted a huge score of 340. So, you know, I I, I wouldn't be too hard on Nepal, but yeah, I just thought maybe they they could have snuck a win. Well, we're recording this on Friday, and uh, there are two massive games coming up over the weekend, or three if you t- if you include the Zimbabwe West Indies game. Mm-hmm. But the the key game probably in the in Group A is the game on Saturday between Nepal and the Netherlands, because yeah. almost certainly the winner of that will join Zimbabwe and the West Indies in the Super Six. Uh, the USA are obviously pretty much out of it, so. The winner of the Nepal-Netherlands game, and I don't think there's an obvious winner of that. I think that will be probably the most significant game from for the Netherlands, who um, made 300-odd against Zimbabwe but then couldn't defend it. And to be fair, the way they bowled, they might have had, a, had trouble defending 380, bowled and fielded. But then on the other hand, had a, a reasonably solid win against against the USA, who obviously are struggling enormously with stomach problems and haven't been helped by the suspension of Ali Khan either. But the illness issues are obviously huge for uh, for the Americans. And now they have a player out because his action has been deemed to be illegal in Kyle Phillip. So mm. um, 
Things are not going well for the Americans. And in the other group, obviously, the game between Oman and Scotland is crucial. So, yeah, I think it's a big, it's obviously a big weekend. Ireland, Sri Lanka, Ireland virtually out, unless they pull off a a surprise against Sri Lanka, uh, which I think it would be a surprise if Ireland were to win, given the way both teams have been performing so far. Uh, They still have to, Ireland still have to play Sri Lanka and the UAE. And you'd expect them to beat the UAE, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't even be sure of that, the way things are going. Uh, Scotland have to play Sri Lanka as well as Oman. But I I think probably at the moment you'd say it's an even money bet between Nepal and the Netherlands. Netherlands perhaps slight favourites and very tough to make a call between Oman and Scotland. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Scotland, yeah, we sort of thought with, you know, the retirements of of Kotsar and McLeod and some of the off-field instability that, you know, when you saw them sort of struggling quite a lot against Ireland and then, you know, took a miraculous <laughs> recovery from Michael Leesk with 91 not out of 60 deliveries and uh, Mark Watt coming through with the bat for them down the order with 40-odd. You know, you thought they were kind of the, the off-field issues were starting to show, uh, but they, they turned it around. and One of the great ODIs of all time. Oh, yeah, spectacular stuff. I mean, one wicket victory off the last ball of the match you know it doesn't get any closer than that um and i think we do have to in passing just note how insane it is that only two teams from this tournament are going to the world cup we know that that's a kind of given of the situation but it is totally insane yeah no i mean think about it imagine if this was an actual world cup game this is exactly the sort of cricket that you want to happen at a world cup as you know it's a fantastic promotion for the game uh yeah so yeah that match against ireland was was an absolute cracker i mean even even the ireland innings you know they were down and out at four for 30 five for 70 and then uh curtis camper came in and, and hit 120 off not too many deliveries as uh, he does to, yeah as, as he does, does. <laughs> uh, in well yes there's a good meme going around of uh camper's performance when ireland are going well is uh, is useless and uh, his performance when they're struggling he turns into beast mode but uh yeah so i mean that that was a cracking game you know ireland posting 280 odd and and scotland chasing it down and you know obviously the the local rivalry was was nice too so you know these kinds of matches should be at a world cup but yeah we we can't do anything about that now and then yeah ireland's other match against oman where they posted again 280 odd george dockerel hit 90 not out and then Oman cruised it, really. They won by five wickets with a couple of overs to spare. Never really looked in danger. Akib Ilyas uh, for Oman has made a big difference coming back. He got some runs against Ireland and he guided the chase against the UAE in in their match. So, yeah, I I think Oman have have proved to be a little bit more dangerous while Ireland have been sort of a, a little bit less impressive than you would hope. But yeah, I mean, that, that point that you make about, you know, there's only two of these, all of these teams make it through is just ridiculous. I guess looking maybe a bit closer at the Netherlands, your area of specialty, they, they've sent a much weaker team than they, you know, on paper should or could uh, with a number of guys uh, back in England playing county cricket, which is unfortunate, but, you know, that's the way the chips fall. What do you make of this Dutch group? And do you think, I mean, I would posit that the experience they had in the Super League with a lot of the time their first choice players not available has actually helped them here because, uh, you know, these these youngsters that they've had to select have actually played uh, a fair bit of cricket. You know, Vikram Singh, who hit uh, quite a nice innings against Zimbabwe, you know, looked not out of place at the top level in, in a number of Super League appearances, for example. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. 
yeah, the the mandatory release farce is something that we could devote an entire program to and probably have in the past. But yes, the fact that throughout the Super League or almost throughout the Super League, the Dutch were playing in the batting without Colin Ackerman, but more particularly without five or six seam bowlers is a scandal. But it means that the side has had to develop other strategies it was interesting that they went uh, into the first game against Zimbabwe with two and a half seam bowlers. And that's slight, probably slightly unfair to Vikram Singh, who actually has developed into quite a useful uh, medium pacer, but with four spinners. Uh, and they changed that balance a little bit against the US by bringing in Ryan Klein, who immediately took two quick wickets to help get the USA into trouble. So it'll be interesting to see what team, what side they put out against Nepal. But yes, Max O'Dowd, Vikram Singh at the top of the order, Wesley Baresi yet really to assert himself, although I think when he's in, he he's he's looking pretty useful. Um Scott Edwards absolutely dependable in the in the in the middle order. It's an interesting lineup and I think Ryan Cook is proving pretty adept at getting them to play to their strengths. I wish they were holding on to more catches than than they are. <laughs> um, but the bowling undoubtedly looked much more purposeful against the USA. You could say easier to look purposeful against the USA than it is against Zimbabwe in full cry. Mm. And Zimbabwe do look, do look, in batting, do look pretty strong. I think the bowling is, is less convincing if you take out Sikanda Raza, who is obviously a pearl without price in that side. But yeah, it's a shame that the Dutch have, don't have a full-strength side out because with a full-strength side out, they can probably compete with most sides as they proved in the T20 in Australia. But as you say, them, them's the breaks. Yeah, I mean, I think your point about uh, Scott Edwards is a good one. Uh, I, I have a lot of time for him as a player. I, I enjoy his captaincy. He, he's not afraid to try things. He sometimes experiments and his batting is always entertaining to watch. He... He's just one of those, play, you know. He's always he's always busy, you know. He does he's running between wickets frenetically. He's sort of uh, squirting it into gaps. He's finding inventive little ways to to get it to the boundary. I I think he's an incredibly valuable player in that middle order because he's so flexible and he has that I guess ability to whoever's bowling. He always finds a way to put it into a gap or, or you know keep the scoreboard ticking over. So yeah, I, I have a lot of time for for Scott Edwards and. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Sikander Raza. A pearl without price is, uh, yeah, pretty much it. I mean, especially in that game against the Netherlands. He hits 100 not out of <laughs> of 50-odd deliveries and takes four wickets with the ball. I mean, you know, that's the, that's pretty much Sikander Raza in a nutshell, you know. And he's been in a sensational form for the last sort of couple of years, really. he's He's been one of the better white ball players in in all of world cricket, you know, that whole Zimbabwean top and middle order, the engine room there of Craig Irvine, Sean Williams, Joy Lord Gumby's made a couple of starts. Uh, it would be nice to see him go on with one, uh, but, uh, you know, he's also looked quite good in, in his time. Uh, Wesley Matavere as well against Nepal was looked, looked like sort of threatened, like he was going to get going, but got out before he could cash in. But yeah, I mean, Zimbabwe, as you say, their batting has looked, uh, has looked very, very good. Their bowling, not quite so much. Uh, Richard Ngarava has been good. Uh, blessing Mizurabani, maybe a little bit wayward compared to what you might expect. He bowled a number of wides against the Netherlands, uh, you know, was, was getting hit around a, a little bit. Uh, and then, yeah, some of their other 
seam bowling options have been looking a little bit threadbare, if we're honest. But yeah, I mean, if they're able to hit 320 in 40 overs, it sort of doesn't matter who they've got bowling because, uh, you know, they've, they've got such such quality in the batting. And I guess it, you would think they'd be a pretty good shot at, at having a, a decent tilt at the actual World Cup if, you know, if these senior guys uh, continue to be in form. Uh, it's only... I mean, we still haven't had the schedule come out, but it's only uh, a few months away. And, you know, so Irvine, Williams, Raza should still be fresh for, for that when it comes around. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think we should say a word about the, the Kyle Phillip situation. Yes. And more particularly about the whole illegal bowling action question in relation to emerging countries. It's not the first such case. And there's been chat around how can this happen? Well, I, I, that's that's what I thought, you know, because growing up in Australia, coaches are always watching for that. And I, I mean, there are a couple of guys in my junior teams who were, had dodgy actions and, you know, the coach said, look, you're, I think you're chucking it. And that's just something that the coaches keep an eye on, even at under 12 level or whatever. Well, I think it's clear that that is, it's perhaps, maybe one shouldn't take Australia as the obvious example. I think it's clear that even in some full members, there is less early attention to this than there should be. And I think it's probably almost universally true in the associates that it doesn't get as much attention as it should. Yeah. Well, why, why do you think that is, Rod? Because I, I remember there's been a few guys, even just in the Netherlands throughout the years, Jonkman, um, Esan Malik, who, who've been pinged for illegal actions. I mean, these are guys who've come up through the Dutch system. So with your experience there, you know, what's going wrong? Well, I think it's a wider problem than that. But I think, yes, undoubtedly, where you don't have experienced expert club coaches, and I think all associate countries have problems about finding really good coaches, you know, on a year-to-year basis in their domestic cricket, then there are going to be these problems. And it was even wider than that. I recall that when Mark Jokman was suspended first in 2010, I wrote about it for Cricket Europe, for whom I was writing at that time. And I contacted the then ICC regional manager, regional development manager, and said, Look, you know, this is an ICC Europe problem as well, because these guys are coming up through the regional youth tournaments in those days, under 15, under 17, under 19. And it hasn't been picked up there either. It's bad enough that it hasn't been picked up in the Netherlands, but it hasn't been picked up by ICC Europe tournament organisations. I think they're better now than they were at that level. But the ICC rules say all national cricket federations shall formulate and implement a policy and strategy in the form of procedures to deal with players with suspected illegal bowling actions in their domestic cricket. It is the responsibility of national cricket federations to ensure that bowlers with suspected illegal bowling actions are closely monitored and scrutinised before being picked to represent the National Cricket Federation in international cricket. Right. Well, it seems like that wasn't happening. I think it's a fair question how many national cricket federations have a policy and strategy of that kind. And I suspect the answer is somewhere close to zero. And the result is that it's only when players get onto television or regional tournaments that it gets picked up, which, of course, is too late. 
because you we know how difficult it is to reconstruct a bowler's bowling action. But you do now see, I have seen with my own eyes, tournament referees, for example, in association with other ICC officials saying, hang on a minute, let we need to start videoing this player. This is at ICC Europe tournaments. And I'm sure maybe it doesn't happen as much as it should, but I, I hope it's happening in regional tournaments in other regions as well. But even then, it shouldn't have got to that point. As you say, these players should have been picked up by by club coaches in youth cricket when they were 10, 11, 12, 13. But both in the men and the women in the Netherlands, that has not been the case. And there have been certain clubs in particular in the Netherlands who had a who had a history of illegal bowling actions. And when players had been suspended internationally or were not playing internationally because it was recognised that they would be suspended, they were allowed to go on playing domestic cricket on the basis that it's only club cricket. Mm. And I find that unbelievable. Yeah, I, I can't speak too much to the situation specifically in the US, but you know, if it's anything like what you've described, I guess it, <laughs> it sort of makes sense that uh, that Phillips wouldn't have been picked up until now. Although, yeah, it is it is really unfortunate that because I mean, really, the biggest victims here are the players themselves, who you know, who, who go through their whole careers trying to get to national level and, and international cricket, and then suddenly they're pinged and they're back to square one. They have to remodel their action or whatever. If someone had just had a bit of a word to him, you know, ten years ago when he was what fifteen then you know maybe he would have more of a chance of, of fixing things uh, whereas you know when it gets to this point it, it's very hard to come back and you know we saw um Esan Malik was never the same after he got called and um yeah Yonkman really faded out of the picture as well so yeah i mean as you say it just seems like the structures involved aren't good enough and i mean <laughs> i guess we can have a bit of a talk about the USA but uh, there's a lot going on there and um you know i, I suppose with so much administrative chaos, bowling actions is maybe something that's a bit lower down the priority list. But yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. I mean, when countries which do have their administrative ducks in a row find it difficult to get on top of this issue, you can hardly expect countries with administrative to be on top of this as well. Uh, if you don't have if you don't have a decent organisational structure all the way down to and including good club administration and good coaching at club level, including youth cricket, then the problem is going to go on happening, isn't it? Yeah, if if no one's looking out for this, then yeah, the the, the bowls. I mean, we've seen that as you, I guess, as you allude to earlier. You know, that we've seen this happen in domestic cricket in uh, a number of full members where players start to come through, and um, you know, there's been sort of crackdowns every now and then, and then I, I don't know, I guess uh, people let it slide, and the the problem <laughs> comes back. I don't know. It, it's something that I guess you just sort of need to be watching for pretty much constantly because you know if you let it get to the point where you're a mid-20s fast bowler there's not a lot of coming back from that and and that's unfortunate because Kyle Phillips was one of the, the more exciting prospects coming through for the US and uh, you know now they're, they're back to square one and I guess just talking maybe a little bit more about the US on the field they have been pretty disappointing lack of intent is the criticism that Peter Del Pena has made and I think it's worth considering you know, the US compared to, say, a Scotland who, you know, they were in a hole in both of their games and they still managed to come back. You know, the, the first game obviously was a was it was an all-time thriller against Ireland. But even that second match against the UAE, they were, they were in a spot of bother there. They were four for 48, you know, looking pretty shaky. And then 
you know, Richie Barrington comes in with 127 rear guard action, uh, Mark Watt, <laughs> another uh, 40-odd not out off not too many deliveries. So, you know, they were fighting every step of the way. And even though their team isn't quite as strong as it might have been a couple of years ago, they still have that mentality of, you know, they, they scrap for every run. They, they, are, they are a good fielding unit. Uh, their bowling also maybe not as good as it has been in the past. Still, you know, they, they are fighting for every wicket. So, you know, you compare Scotland, who on paper aren't really that much better than the US, and, and their performances with the US, and yeah, okay, you know, they've, they've, they've got the stomach bugs, but yeah, it's not really much of an excuse when, when you can... It's just a complete lack of intent, uh, which, yeah, I, t- I totally agree with PDP on that point. I mean, that said, they did manage to get to 211 against the Dutch. About 10 or a dozen overs in, I started looking at record low totals because um, <laughs> that appeared to be the way it was going. And I think they, Jahangir and two or three others, did actually manage to get them them back to a half-decent total. And in fact, there was a period in the middle of the Dutch innings where it almost looked as if the Americans might be getting back into it. So particularly considering that they were without Ali Khan, who'd gone off the field after four overs, and they're without Mayank Patel... I think they're. I think they showed a little more fight than you or, or Peter are suggesting. Plus, they've got the stomach bug issues. But yes, we know that the American side historically have not done terribly well in international tournaments. Yeah, and it seems to be some kind of. I don't know. Is it a mental block? Or I mean, they were pretty incompetent against spin, and that's a long-standing chronic issue for them, which is. Kind of bizarre. I mean, we've talked about it with Nate Hayes, but they have so many good spinners in the US setup, and but somehow they can't figure out how to play against spin. It's 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 quite strange. Ultimately, it's the setup, isn't it? And there are there are genuine problems in the United States because it's such a large country with such a small cricket community in isolated pockets. So setting up any kind of decent national structures would be difficult anyway, even if you had goodwill on all sides and a decent set of (laughs) organisational structures. But it's clear that they don't. And it's kind of rough then to throw together a squad of 15 people drawn from God knows where and put them in American shirts and send them out and say, go and perform for us, boys. Well, yeah, I mean, we we can... I mean, maybe we'll get Nate Hayes on to talk about some of the minor league versus major league versus USAC splits going on. But yeah, goodwill on all sides. Let's just say that seems to be lacking. Yes, I think that's fair. I I think anybody who hasn't already read it needs to read Neverland, the novel by Joseph O'Neill, which is about American cricket and written by an Irishman who learned his cricket in the Netherlands and now teaches in New York. It's a great novel at a number of levels. It's a 9-11, it's a post-9-11 novel, I realised the last time mm. I reread it, because I reread it several times. But it's it's very good on the organisational issues confronting American cricket. Well, I mean, while we're doing uh, book recommendations, Peter Della Pena's Inside the Selection Room is still a pretty uh, enlightening read. Uh, that was kind of when the ICC sent a, a team to more or less take over some of the the American uh, administrative capabilities and, and they ran a, a sort of scouting tournament and, and whatnot. And uh, that was that was a very interesting and eye-opening uh, portrait into American cricket in, in a period where there was a lot of instability. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, as you listen to this, the group stage will probably still be ongoing. The final group matches happen uh, on the 27th of June, and we head into the playoffs, uh, the Super 6 phase, which begins on the 29th of June, and it runs through to the 7th of July. Uh, So still a bit of the tournament to run uh, before we find the two teams to make it to the 2023 World Cup in India, which, as we know, will be hosted uh, in a couple of months' time, but we still don't know when and where. Uh, that's another discussion. Um, any final thoughts, Rod? No, I just think it's been a it's been a great tournament so far, and yeah, once again, it's just a shame that more countries won't be strutting their stuff in India in the World Cup proper. Yes, but that's an uh, ongoing story, and there is hope on that front down the line, isn't there? Yes, uh, 14 teams uh, slated to play in the 2027 World Cup, although, yeah, it's it's pretty disappointing that it, we had to go on this uh, detour to the two 10-team 10, 10 World Cups. But, uh, yeah, as you say, that's that's another topic entirely. But part of a much bigger story. Yep. Thanks a lot, Rod. Uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up with our Netherlands correspondent and, I guess, just general contributor at the Emerging Cricket Project. Good to hear from you. Happy to be here and look forward to our next conversation. And thanks a lot to you, dear listener, for tuning in. And we hope to speak next week about all sorts of exciting cricket happening in the emerging world.